Please turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18. We'll be looking at verses 9 through 17 this morning. Luke, chapter 18, verses 9 through 17. And before we read that together, let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we come to you. We come to you this morning to hear your voice. We come to you to receive afresh your grace. We come to you because we are uh, needy and uh, we know that you are the one who can supply all that we need, uh, most of all the mercy and grace that is found in the cross. And so we come to you right now. We pray that you would give us ears to hear, uh, eyes to see, minds to understand, hearts to receive everything that you have for us in your word this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, Luke 18, verses 9 through 17. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I get, but the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Are you a good person? I'll warn you, it's a bit of a trick question. On the one hand, you might say, sure. I'm not an axe murderer or a car thief. I'm not at the center of one of the many sexual abuse scandals we hear about almost every day. I'm generally a nice guy or gal, as long as you don't get on my bad side. I work hard at my job. I love my spouse and kids. I pay my taxes. I I give to charity. And if you do all these things, great. Uh, I, I commend you for it. Don't hear anything that I'm about to say as denying the importance of all of those things. Nevertheless, it is a lie to believe in some unqualified way, I am a good person. Now, last week we started a mini-series on lies we believe, and, and last week we looked at the lie that only I know what's best for me. It's a lie that overshadows all the rest because as long as we believe that, as long as we believe that only only we know what is true for us or best for us, uh, it's hard to address any of the other lies that we believe. 
We first need humility enough to admit we might be wrong before we can move forward and address some of those wrongs. Well, this week we're looking at another lie, the unqualified statement, I am a good person. Now, uh, if you're uncomfortable with me calling that a lie, I totally understand. It, it makes me a little uncomfortable saying it. Uh, but one time, someone called Jesus good. And he responded like this in Luke 18. It's just a little past uh, what we read a moment ago. Jesus said, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And do you see what Jesus is saying? If we really understood what good meant, we would understand that no one is good except God alone. Now, you, you might wonder, do people even believe they are good anymore? Uh, that, that may sound like an odd statement, but hear me out. Uh, often people act as if there is no objective right and wrong, no moral absolutes. Now, if there is no right and wrong, then people can't be good and bad. Maybe the notion that people want to think of themselves as good people is just a, a holdover from Christianity. And as we mature as a race, we will jettison the concept of moral goodness altogether. Well, if you want to disabuse yourself of that thought, just listen uh, to the social and political rhetoric of our day. Uh, the other side, whatever side that is, isn't just wrong, they're evil. Uh, they shouldn't just change their minds, they should be wiped off the planet. And this comes from both religious and secular people alike. We can't seem to shake the idea that moral goodness is important, and of course in the end, however we might define goodness, we want to be seen as good. This is where the concept of, of virtue signaling comes from, right? A phrase that was coined as recently as 2015. Uh, according to the dictionary, it means the sharing of one's point of view in order to receive the acknowledgement of one's righteousness from others who share that same point of view. I don't just want to be right on the right side, supporting the right causes. I want others to know it. The whole discussion around virtue signaling is filled with moral judgments. The moral judgments of those who want to be seen in the right and the moral judgments of those who call them out for it as hypocrites. In fact, calling people out for virtue signaling could be a kind of virtue signaling, as in, I'm not one of those people who engages in virtue signaling. We want, to, we want to think that we are good people, and we want other people to think that we are good people, no less today than 500 years ago or 1,000 years ago or more. Which brings us back to the lie that I'm saying we tell ourselves, I am a good person. So this morning, we're gonna look at that lie I'm a good person, and, and we'll look at the, the shade of truth that that lie distorts, that we are people made in God's image and continuing to reflect that image. We'll look at the destructive power of that lie, that, that a high view of self leads to a low view of others. And we'll look at the saving power of the truth, that the one who humbles himself will be exalted. You can find that uh, brief outline in your bulletin. Or, or put it differently, right? We're going to look at the deception, what it distorts, what it destroys, and what it denies. And of course, in light of last week, in order to look at this wisely, uh, uh, the goal will be to look at the whole thing through the lens of the gospel. So first, the, the lie. 
I am a good person. I could have phrased this a hundred different ways, and you probably heard someone say, either about themselves or someone else, some of the following. I'm really not that bad. Uh, at least I'm not like that guy. Uh, I'm basically good at heart. Uh, I'm really a, a good person if you get to know me. I, I didn't mean to do those bad things. I, I didn't have a choice. Or our, our culture's favorite, I think, at the moment is, I can be whoever I want to be. Uh, which is a way of saying it is morally okay for me to be whoever I want to be. I am who I want to be, therefore I am morally okay. I can be whoever I want to be as a way of defending the moral goodness of who one is. In other words, if I can be whoever I want to be, then, then you can't judge me for who I am. Now, what, what's the truth in this? Uh, because there is, there's always a truth behind every lie. Uh, Satan is not creative. He is not an artist. He's not original. All he can do is mimic, distort, and parody. So what truth is he parodying with this lie? Uh, the, the truth is that we are made in God's image. Uh, Genesis 1.27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And part of that image is righteousness. Ecclesiastes 7.29, God made man upright. Paul in Ephesians 4 defines the image of God as true righteousness and holiness. We were made in God's image. And, and while that image in us has been distorted by sin, which we will get to, it has not been destroyed. Every person on the planet is God's image, a reflection of the divine. Uh, now, none of us is a complete reflection. We, we can't be because we are creatures and not the creator, finite and not infinite. And none of us is a perfect reflection. None of us perfectly reflects what we do reflect because we are sinful and so morally broken. But that doesn't undo the fact that we are created in God's image. We bear that image. We reflect that image. This means that humanity by our very nature has a place of honor and dignity and value and worth. The psalmist says of humanity in Psalm 8, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. And we need to understand that, that human beings have value as human beings. I mean, isn't that what we say when we speak out against abortion? that the little baby is a human being, and human beings have dignity and value and worth. Now, why is that? Because we are made in God's image. That doesn't change when those little babies grow up. What does this mean? It means that when we approach other people, uh, we must approach them in this way, as people made in God's image and so valuable. We must treat others as people who have dignity and worth and therefore show them respect. Now, what does this mean for our self? image, for our identity. We must see ourselves as creatures created in the image of God, made to reflect something or someone bigger and grander and more wonderful than ourselves. We don't deserve this. We didn't earn it. It doesn't give us grounds for boasting, but it is a big and beautiful and wonderful sense of self, and it's the only thing that captures the wonder of Genesis 1 and Psalm 8. We are the image of God. But there's more. Uh, we are examining this claim, I am a good person, and we've seen that there, there is truth behind it, right? We, we are creatures made in the image of God and so having uh, dignity and value and worth, but that's not the end of the story. And that brings us to Luke chapter 18. 
Luke 18 has, a, a, I think, a rather famous parable of Jesus, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. It's about two men who go to pray at the temple, the place where God met with his people. And the, the contrast between these two men could not be greater. One is a Pharisee, one of the religious elite. Uh, the, the Pharisees obeyed the law down to every jot and tittle. They, they were the people that everybody else looked at and said, wow, I could never be like that. The other is a tax collector, a traitor to his Jewish brethren. Tax collectors conspired with the Roman occupying force. They would be the kind of emotional equivalent of a Jewish person who worked with the Nazis. I mean, how dare you, right? And for money. I, I think we miss the shock value of this parable because we already know that the Pharisees are the bad guys and Jesus was a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But of course, Jesus' initial hearers did not have that conception in their minds. And so if you want to get some of that shock value, read it like this. Two men came to church to worship. One was a lifelong missionary who had given up everything for the cause of the gospel, and the other was a homosexual prostitute. Now, if that offends you, well, that, that, that's probably good because it means you can feel what Jesus' original hearers felt because they would have been offended by this parable. But the contrast doesn't end with their persons, it extends to their posture. The Pharisee stands by himself. Now, why do people stand by themselves? Uh, there are lots of reasons, I guess. Uh, but from the rest of the parable, the reason here is clear. He puts himself above others. He thinks he is better than. He sets himself apart because he sees himself as better and above. The tax collector, on the other hand, stands far off. Uh, why do people stand far off? Why do people stand on the side? Why do they avoid the group? Again, there could be lots of reasons. In some ways, their, their postures are very similar and yet completely opposite. Often people stand far off because they, not because they think they are better than, but just the opposite, they think they are not worthy. The tax collector puts himself down. He thinks he is worse than others. He sets himself apart because he sees himself as worse and below. Not only does he stand far off, but he won't even lift up his eyes to heaven. Now, the, the common posture in prayer in those days was to stand with arms raised, speaking up to heaven. There was nothing wrong with that, of course. Paul says in 1 Timothy 2.8, I desire that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands. But the tax collector knows that he is not worthy, not worthy to lift his eyes to heaven. He, he looks at his shoes, right? He kicks at the ground. He won't even lift up his face. But what does he do? Rather than lift his hands, he beats his breast. He pounds his chest because he knows there is something wrong inside. And so these two men are opposite in their persons, they are opposite in their posture, and they are opposite in their prayers. The Pharisee prays like this in Luke 18, 11 to 12. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twi twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. The Pharisee compares himself to others favorably. He boasts in his actions, in his piety. He asks God for nothing. The tax collector prays like this in Luke 18, 13. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. 
He compares himself to others unfavorably, right? He, he is a or even the sinner. The, the Greek has the, the definite article. He confesses his actions are sin. He asks God for mercy. And Jesus says this second person, the tax collector, goes home justified. We'll come back to this word justified in a moment. For, but for now, just know that Jesus is commending the tax collector and condemning the Pharisee. Now, the next uh, point I, that I want to make may seem out of place, but it's actually one of the main points of the parable, which is that a high view of self leads to a low view of others. Uh, an inflated view of self, a distortedly high view of self, leads to a low view of everything else. And notice, this is the occasion of the parable. Look back at verse 9. Verse 9 says that, that Jesus, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. And notice two things. First, that the parable is getting at the question, who is really righteous? And second, it deals with those who think they are righteous and as a result, look down on others. A high view of self leads to a, a low view of everything else. And that in three ways. Uh, first, a high view of self leads to a, a low view of others. We, we all have our, our systems of self-justification. That is, we all have our ways of proving how good we are. For the Pharisees, it was through religious piety. I fast twice a week. I give a tithe of all that I get. And so it is today. For some, uh, we prove how good we are through religious observance, right? Reading our Bibles, attending church services, evangelizing the lost. And yet for others, uh, we prove how good we are by recycling or buying organic and local. For many in our, our day and country, it's by voting one way or another. We have little things we do to prove ourselves to ourselves and to others and to God. Uh, biblically, these are our systems of self-justification. Whenever we say, I'm good because, but these systems of self-justification inevitably involve a comparison, don't they? I'm good and you're not, or at least he's not, or she's not. I'm not that bad almost always means I'm not as bad as that guy. And so the Pharisee prays, I thank you that I am not like other men extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. And, and, and the question for us is, right, what, what are our systems of self-justification? Where do we say, I'm pretty good because? Uh, where do we say, at least I'm not like? Uh, where do we look down our noses on? Where do we have a, a visceral, visceral response to the sin of others? Watch out, right? Because the moment you begin saying, I can't believe he or she or they did that, is the moment you are saying, I can't imagine being that guy. I can't imagine being that sinful. And you can see our, our systems of self-justification very quickly turn into us versus them then. I'm righteous because I vote Republican or Democrat or Independent or Green Party or whatever. I'm righteous because I do or do not wear a mask. I'm righteous because I stay at home and protect others. Or I'm righteous because I'm not afraid to go out. We all have our systems. And the question here, of course, is not what is right or wrong at the moment, but where do I ground my righteousness? Where do I say I'm in the right because I do this? So first, a high view of self leads to a low view of others. Uh, but a high view of self also leads to a low view of grace. 
Uh, th that is, um, this is the I'm not that bad, thanks for help in making me awesome view of grace, right? If I'm not that bad, then grace might give me assistance, but it's not a life support system. It's a help where and when I need it, but I don't need it everywhere and all the time. Uh, notice the Pharisee's prayer. He, he doesn't acknowledge his sin. He doesn't ask for grace. He doesn't really need God for anything. He just says, thank you, God, for making me awesome. Uh, now, we are made in the image of God, and, and that is pretty awesome. We can thank God for that, so don't mishear me, but it's not the end of the story. It's not the whole picture. High view of self leads to a low view of others and a low view of grace. It's something I don't really need all that much because look at how good I am after all. The third, a high view of self leads to a low view of God. Now, the truth is this Pharisee doesn't seem to have the slightest reservation about his right to be in God's presence. Uh, not because God is so merciful, but because he is so good. Right? There, there's no sense of God's holiness or majesty or mercy uh, this Pharisee deserves what he gets. I mean, look at his record, right? Fasting and tithing above and beyond what is required by the law. He is an overachiever. Why wouldn't God love him? And while we don't see this here, this attitude often ends up uh, judging God, doesn't it? Uh, you, you see, if I'm not that bad, then I probably deserve better. Uh, I mean, God owes me, right? He, he's holding out on me. Rather than deserving judgment and needing grace, I deserve more. Uh, if things go poorly, I get angry at God and look at all I do. How dare God let that happen? Rather than seeing God as God and me as his servant, I, I see God as my servant. So an inflated sense of self quickly leads to a low view of grace, of others, and even of God himself. And Jesus ends that parable saying, the one who exalts himself will be humbled. If you think highly of yourself, if you do not seek grace, you will not receive grace, only condemnation. But then there's the tax collector. In him we see that the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The Pharisee has a high view of himself and a low view of everything else. It's a view that ends with God serving me instead of me serving God. But the tax collector is different. He sees himself as the sinner. He claims no right to draw near. He has no presumption that God will accept him. He has no status, only an unending need for mercy. And we see this also in the next story. We read it earlier. Uh, some people begin bringing their infant children to Jesus. Now, why, why bring children to Jesus? Uh, they want Jesus to lay hands on them and bless them, something made explicit in the other Gospels. Uh, why, why, why bring Jesus uh, children so that he might bless them? Uh, well, perhaps it's because uh, I'm told that the infant mortality rate in that day was about 30%. And what does that mean? That means uh, one out of every three children didn't make it out of infancy. Jesus was a teacher, a, a rabbi, a holy man, and a healer. Maybe he could bring life where otherwise there was a good chance of death. And so they bring their children. And the disciples rebuke them. But Jesus, in turn, then rebukes his disciples, right? He says in Luke 18, let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall never enter it. Now, more often than not, uh, when people read verses like this in the Gospels, I, I think they miss the point. 
See, we ask, what is it about being a child that Jesus is commending here? And we answer very often with subjective virtues. We say, well, children are trusting, or children are meek, or children are innocent, or children are pure, or children are teachable. Now, first of all, I don't know what children you've been around, but let's just say these things aren't always true. But I don't think Jesus is commending any virtue here. Notice what just happened. The disciples shooed away the children. Why? Children in that culture had no status. They had no rights. What was, what was characteristic of children, regardless of their attitude, was their, their low status and their dependence. They had no standing and no strength. They were utterly dismissed and utterly dependent. They had no boast. Their parents didn't come to Jesus and say, my little Johnny won the science fair, you should bless him. Or my little Susie got first place in the spelling bee, you should bless her. Right? They, they had no status, no strength, no boast, nothing to commend them. The dis disciples dismissed them without a second thought. And Jesus says, you must become like a child, having no boast. Not like the Pharisee who said, I give a tithe of all that I get. But like the tax collector who said, God, have mercy on me, the sinner. I have nothing. You have everything. Have mercy. We must come to God as sinners because that is what we are. And so we come with no boast, no status, no standing, no right, no demands. God, have mercy on me, the sinner. We must come to God as sinners. And... We are welcome to come as sinners. At the heart of, of the Christian identity is, is these three, really even a fourth idea, that we are created in God's image, that we are sinful, and that we are welcome. Right? Let the children come to me, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. A fourth, which we'll talk a little more about next week, is that we are also made new. We are new creatures in Christ. But that's, that's next week's sermon, not this week's sermon. So at the heart of the Christian identity are at least these three, plus the fourth. We are created in God's image, we are sinful, and we are welcome. Notice what Jesus says about the tax collector. This one went home justified. Now, now what is, uh, where is true righteousness found? That was one of the, the thoughts in the minds of his hearers. Where is true righteousness found? Not in boasting in my piety, but in humbly seeking God's mercy. He was justified. The tax collectors, the tax collector, he hadn't made up for his sins. There was no penance. He hadn't turned over a new leaf. He had not yet borne fruit in keeping with repentance, but he was justified. To be justified is to be declared righteous. The tax collector, as he was, was declared righteous. Not on the basis of anything he had done, but by faith. Faith? Yes. Right? Faith, the, the, the word for, for mercy here, God have mercy on me, the sinner. The word for mercy here is related to the Greek word for mercy seat. In fact, some have translated this prayer, God be mercy seated to me. Uh, the tax collector is in the temple looking toward uh, the, the holy place, toward the holy of holies where the mercy seat was, saying, God, do that for me. Well, what happened at the mercy seat? Under the mercy seat in the Ark of the Covenant were, were the Ten Commandments, the law. 
And there, once a year, the high priest offered a sacrifice for the sins of Israel, and he brought the blood into the Holy of Holies, and he sprinkled its blood on the mercy seat, covering the law's demands in blood, showing that the law's penalty had been paid. And the tax collector is saying, God, show that mercy to me. Remove my sin, pay my penalty, satisfy the law's demands, shed blood on my behalf. God, be mercy seated to me. And he went home justified. In fact, Jesus says he was exalted. Whoever exalts himself will be humble, but the one who humbles himself, Jesus says, will be exalted. And this, of course, is the, the counterintuitive logic of grace, that the, the way down is actually the way up. Deny your sins, and you will be condemned for them. Admit your sins, and you will be declared righteous and enter into the kingdom. For to such those who recognize they have no right, no demand, no bargaining chips, to such who become like a child belongs the kingdom of God. Why is that? Well, those who, who think highly of themselves end up treating God like a servant. God, I deserve more. God, I deserve better. To them, God becomes a judge. But to those who humble themselves, who recognize God as judge, God became a servant. Jesus, who was in the form of God, took on the form of a servant, made himself nothing, became obedient to the point of death. He humbled himself by dying, by suffering for our sins. But God highly exalted him by raising him from the dead. The one who humbled himself was exalted. And that is the way forward for us, right? Humble yourself and you will be exalted. Admit your sin, acknowledge your brokenness, be honest, not just about your general sinfulness, but about specific sins. Get real with God, right? Get real with people you sin against. See your sin, own it, confess it, and God will exalt you with his son now in heaven as Jesus is at the right hand of the Father and on the last day at the resurrection of the just. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that you would declare us just, not because we have righteousness in ourselves, but because of the righteousness of Jesus, because he died for our sins, he shed his blood, that our sins would be forgiven, and that we would be declared righteous in him. Father, help us to look to him, to trust in him. Help us to be honest about our sin, about our rebellion, about our transgression and to receive justification by faith in Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.